Hello, this is Pastor Ed Hill, host of This Week in the Word, where we grow in our knowledge of the Word of God and our walk with Christ. I'm glad you're with us today for this episode of Truth for Tough Times, a study of First and Second Timothy in the Christian New Testament. We come today for the episode for Sunday, March 20th, 2022, and we've entitled that God's Requirements for Pastors. Do we ever need to hear that again in our day? <laughs> Truth for tough times, God's requirement for pastors. You may remember, if you've been with us, in the closing of chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, it has been clearly established in the Word of God, as I showed you, that women are not to be ordained to church leadership. They may have a rich and varied ministry in the church. However, church leadership is not an area that God allows women <clears throat> to be set apart to. But neither are a vast majority of men. 99.99% of men are not to be pastors. Only a few qualified men who meet God's requirements. Now, why do so many churches have problems with pastors? Probably because pastors have churches, and pastors will tell you they have so many problems with their churches. But I mean, why do you see so many pastors in the news today and, and not in a good way? Well, it can be from the corner church to the mega church, pastors today are held in much lower esteem by the community than they were in past years because of pastors. And I put quote marks around that last, pastors. Two weeks ago, I saw a publicity pic on social media of a now 30-something-year-old disgraced pastor of a megachurch and the picture, at least as I understood it, was as he sat in a bowling alley or somewhere like that with a world-renowned celebrity. I believe they were drinking alcohol, and even if it wasn't in the pic, I know that it had been referred to by the celebrity. And they dressed like they were both 13-year-old gangster wannabes. In a word, they were idiotic-looking. This gave a new meaning in my mind to the trending tag, no filter, you know, hashtag no filter, as the church, and again, I put that in quote marks, as the church had no filter of scripture in picking out or following such leadership, again, in quote marks. Well, I don't want to beat up on people, but sometimes they deserve it. But anyway. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And by the way, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, who do you think you are? Blah, 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 blah. Well, I'll tell you what. I was a pastor for 30 years. And I know what is involved in being a pastor. When it's done right, it is hard work. Let me tell you. And I know nobody believes that, but it is. And we're going to see that there are some very exacting requirements that God has. And we don't have to guess what they are. They're laid out right here one by one in Scripture. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, 
Now, let me point out before we even get into this, that in the New Testament, there are three titles given to the leaders of churches. Overseers, and we get our word bishop from that. Elders, and we get our word presbyters, or or rather, yeah, elders, but the Greek word is presbyters. Uh, Older men is the idea. And we get our word presbyterian from that. And then pastors, those are shepherds of the church. But they're three names for the same man, three names for the same office, three names for the same position. And we know in the New Testament they are used interchangeably. So they're not like um, levels or grades of church leadership. I know it's been turned into that, but that is not the New Testament idea. All right, let's go to 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. And by the way, I have mentioned many times, I think I even did it last week, about inductive Bible study, where you break down the scriptures for yourself using very helpful study tools like a concordance and a uh, Greek lexicon, uh, many other types of uh, books and tools like that that I guess are even online today. And you break it down so that you can see exactly what it says. That's where you always start. What does it say? And then what does it mean, you know, based on what it says? And the very last thing should be, what does it mean to me? In other words, how can I apply this? Uh, what principle is here that can guide my life? Too often today, people study the Bible by skipping number one and two, which are critical, and they go only to number three and say, well, to me, this verse means, well, like I said last week, we don't really care what you think it means to you. We want to see what does it say, what does it mean and then we can think about, you know, what, what does it mean to me? How does it apply to me? What do I do with this? All right, right here, let's go into 1 Timothy 3, and let's start at verse 1. Always a great place to start. Let's see his aspiration, that is, a pastor's aspiration. What does he aspire to? All right, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, we read, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. In other words, that is a a good thing if a man would like to be a leader or pastor in a church. There's nothing wrong with that, provided it's from God. All right, the Greek word here for if a man desire, that word desire is origo, It means to stretch out, to desire, to long for. So if if a man longs to be in the ministry of the Lord, that in general terms is a good thing. You see, I believe it is God who calls and creates this desire within a Christian man. But when a man says he is called, he must be first tested. Some are called, no doubt about it. Some are mama called. In other words, mama always wanted him to be in the ministry. Some want a cushy country club backslapper profession. 
and you've seen them, and I've seen them too. Some are simply not qualified, or maybe not qualified yet. Many are called, but few are chosen. And that's a principle directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he was talking about salvation, but I think it applies just as well to many may be called, or feel they're called, let's say, but few are chosen. You know, and actually, our churches, I think, mess this up. We think everybody who says they're called is called, and we choose them all. Well, that's where a lot of the problems start. Now, back to the verse. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, episcopo, uh, let's see, episcope, episcopy is the word, I'm sorry. This is the office of a church overseer. A bishop, uh, that that role um, of how he serves as a bishop is to superintend or oversee the overall progress of the church. But notice here, it says, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Epithumio means he longs for a good work. This is a, a desire from above him that he longs to be involved in the work of God. But again, as I said, if, if that's really true, then it will be possible for him to be tested and to be proven, right? We, we test gold to prove it's the real thing, right? It doesn't hurt the gold to be tested. And the same thing is true here. So we see his aspiration. That's a good thing. Let's be sure that it's God who's really calling him. Then his character, verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless. Let's take that first phrase. Episcopos, he is the word for bishop here. This is the overseer, so it's a noun. A bishop then must be blameless. Now, we'll see in a minute what that word means, but I want you to see what the word must says. A bishop then must be blameless. The Greek word is dei, D-E-I, and it means binding, necessary, proper. A bishop then must be blameless. Now, does this mean that he's sinless? No, or there would never be ever any pastors, right? A bishop then must be blameless. So if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? Well, it means to not be able to get a handle on him. That is, there's nothing in his life that would be a, uh, something that people could use against him. Also, we see that a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Now, this is very important. Listen carefully, and you will understand better why I said last week that women are not to be ordained to be the preachers or pastors or leaders of the church. That's not from me. That's from God. And it's not cultural. And I'll show you why right here. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. The word used for husband here in Greek is anir. It means male, M-A-L-E. 
It is a man, a male, as opposed to a female, okay? It is a male, a man of one wife. He is a a one-woman kind of man, it's been said. Now, notice here it's very clear. And I know this might upset some people, but I don't care. This is the Word of God. This is a male who is married to, guess what? A female, gyne, the same place we get our word gynecology from. This is a female, a, a male married to a female, and not to a bunch of them, just he's faithful to one. He's a one-woman kind of man. Too often in my lifetime, I've heard of pastors and various churches and various cultures of churches who are known as playboys. This is wrong. This is not what a man of God is. A man of God is faithful to his wife, okay? Now, I do not believe it requires a man to be married, but if he is, is to be to only one woman. Of course, we know from the rest of the New Testament, if that wife passed away, then he is free to remarry another Christian woman. You, you see that? But right here, very clearly, this pastor is a male. He is a man, not a female not a woman, and this is not cultural, okay? And he's not married to another man. He's married to a woman. The Greek word gyne, gynecological, gynecology is the word used here for wife. This is indisputable, unless you just don't care what the Bible says. All right, let's go back to verse two. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant. Now, what does this word mean? It means somber, temperate. He's, he's abstinent, for example, in respect to the use of wine. He's circumspect. He's self-controlled. So let's build block upon block. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant. That is, he's a, he's a very self-controlled person. Also, we see that he is to be sober. This means to, uh, it's the Greek word sophron, and it means to be of a sound mind, to be sane. Let me tell you, being a pastor sometimes feels like you're going to go insane. So it's best if you start being sane, right? <laughs> So a pastor is to be of a sound mind. He's to be sane, temperate, discreet, and again, the idea of being self-controlled. He is to be something else, of good behavior. Cosmios is the word used here. We often have heard of, for example, the cosmos. We think of the universe. Well, do you know that word means something that's orderly? And by the way, that is the basis and reason for true science. Through the ages, men of God knew that God was a God of order. And therefore, if they studied his creation, which was orderly, they could learn things about it. And that's why science 
was born, okay? It's been perverted, of course, but that was the original philosophical base of science, that God was uh, orderly and therefore we could study his creation and learn more about his principles and about him. So he's also to be of good behavior. Uh, the Greek word cosmios, and this means decorous. He's just like, you know, he just says the right thing at the right time. He has the right actions in the right situations. Rarely embarrasses him his, himself or his church. He's respectable. And this is the phrase I want you to get right here is well-ordered. Here's a quote. I would like you to write it down. Get a paper and pencil and write this down. I'm talking to you. There is power in an ordered life. Do you know who said that? I did. I said it a few years ago and it stuck with me. And it's true. When your life, whether you're a pastor or not, when your life is marked by being well-ordered, you will be amazed how effective you can be, what power there is in having your life ordered by the Lord. It even comes down to, you know, what uh, Jordan B. Peterson says is, don't try to change the world until you first make your bed. Even the Marines operate on that principle. They spend an enormous amount of time showing Marine recruits who want to be Marines, earn the Eagle, Anchor, and Globe at the end of boot camp. They spend a large amount of time showing them how to get their act together, even to exactly how their their, uh, bunk is to be made where everything is to be kept, exactly how it's to be kept, exactly how to go to chow hall, exactly how to march to take care of their weapon, all of that. It's not left to do it however they want. And you do you know why? There is power in an ordered life. If you feel, for example, even though you may never ever be a pastor, If you feel like your life is a train wreck and out of control, remember that principle. Start by making your bed. Even, listen to me, even if that's literally what you have to start with tomorrow morning. You know, I never make my bed. Well, tomorrow morning, you're going to start because you're going to learn how to have an ordered life. There's power in an ordered life. And this this idea of this good behavior is required of pastors. If you've ever seen a pastor who is a total mess, just total chaos, I can assure you that he had a very unproductive ministry. I'm I'm be pretty sure about that. And nobody is inspired by such a man. So a pastor is to be of good behavior. He's to be decorous, respectable, well-ordered. He's also to be given to hospitality. This means, um, the Greek word is philizinos, means he's a lover of strangers. 
And it's that idea of brotherly love. You know, we get our word Philadelphia from that. He is to be kind to strangers. He is to be hospitable. A, a man in the ministry who is unkind to strangers and inhospitable is no testimony to the ministry. So that's another way he can be tested. Here's another thing he's to be that is to be true of him. Apt to teach, that is able to teach. And this idea of being a didactic, that is a teacher, he's able to teach. He's qualified to teach. But I had a pastor once, and he couldn't teach Pastor Ed. Then he probably was a pretty sorry pastor, because that's what he's supposed to do. That is one of the major things a pastor is supposed to do in his preaching. He is to be a teacher of the word. Listen, far from being the most popular person in the church, I believe a true man of God will be working on the last good nerve of those who oppose the truth and those who refuse to repent and the plain old religious grump, all right? Because he will be so clearly teaching the word of God that there's no wiggle room, there's nowhere to hide, there's no way to, you know, to uh, take the exit ramp because he's, it's like I said, he's, he may be only a waiter, but he delivers the food cooked by the chef hot straight from the kitchen. God's the chef. The preacher's just the waiter, but man, he delivers it just like the cook dished it out, piping hot to the restaurant. That's what a good teacher of the word is. Something else about him that that he's not to be is in verse three, not given to wine. Par oinos is the Greek word here. It means staying near the wine given to wine. We might use the word addicted to wine. He's what the Bible would call, if he's staying near the wine, given to wine, the Bible will call him a drunkard. A drunkard is not to be in the ministry. He is not to be the pastor of a church. And I'll tell you this, a man can't be under the control of the Holy Spirit when he's under the influence of unholy spirits. Get it? And you know, to play it safe, I decided to wait until the kingdom of God if I'm going to drink wine. (laughs) Pastor Ed, what are you talking about? Well, rather than looking for reasons why it's okay for Christians to drink today, and that seems to be a major preoccupation with some people, uh, I decided to just play it safe. Jesus said that he would not drink again of the fruit of the vine until he drank it new with the disciples, with us, in the kingdom. So I'm just going to wait until the kingdom of God, if that's okay with you. (laughs) Try that on. Think about that a little bit. Instead of looking for all the reasons you can indulge in alcohol. You know, just about everything that can happen with alcohol, almost all of it, is bad. Okay, so save it, do like me, and play it safe. 
and just wait until the kingdom of God. Now, um, of course, I've tasted wine when I was a teenager and uh, champagne once. I totally didn't get that. And beer, actually, I think beer tastes pretty good. You know what? I made a decision as a Christian that that just didn't need to have a part in my life. And I've tried to be an example there to my churches and to my family. I told one of my churches once that they could rest assured if I got a call at 3 a.m. about an accident or had to go to the hospital or someone died, they would never have to worry that I might not be sober. How about that? That's the kind of person you want leading your churches, okay? Now, and by the way, even if you say, well, I still think uh, pastors and Christians can drink. Well, here's the thing. Um, We could go back and forth on that, but I just think that, you know, when you realize how powerful drink and, and drugs, substance abuse can be, and so many people don't, when they get started in that, don't know the hold it's going to get on them, it's just better to play it safe. You know what I mean? And I could go into the whole thing about the the actual strength, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the word? Organically, chemically, however you want to describe it, the actual strength of what was used in New Testament times pales in comparison to what people can create now with the processes we we have now. I just think it's a smarter safer choice to just not have that in your life. Anyway, uh, not given to wine, no striker. Here's the next thing. He is not to be what? A striker, someone who hits someone, someone who's apt to strike someone, a quarrelsome, violent person. This type of person is never to be in church leadership as a pastor, okay? And if you found out that your pastor is that, some action needs to be taken because that's not the right person to be pastoring your church. He's also not greedy of filthy lucre. This is a Greek word, aphilagoros. And when the, the First letter A is in front of the P H I L, which means that that love of something. It means he doesn't love it. Okay, you get that. So he is not someone who's in love with money. Meaning, therefore, he's not covetous, and because he's not fond of money, not in love with money, and he's not covetous, you know, greedy. Therefore, he can be generous. That should be a characteristic of a pastor. Further, it says, but patient, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient. This means that he's to be fair, reasonable, gentle. He's mild, he's patient. And this is how he interacts with people. Now, I like to think that a pastor needs to be like a velvet-covered brick, that when people are doing the right thing, you know, they feel the, the velvet part of the brick. But when people need to be confronted by the Word of God, 
then then that brick comes out, right? Uh, or like the uh, gloved uh, fist, you know, that idea. So it's not talking about somebody who's a pushover, who's a dope, who can be uh, gullible and all of that. It just means that he's, he's all squared away and he treats people as much as he possibly can, being reasonable and gentle and mild and patient. Also, he's not a brawler. He's, he's not covetous. Amakos is the word for not a brawler. He's not disposed to fight. He's not quarrelsome or contentious. Now, there's a very fine line between standing for the truth of Scripture and being somebody who's out to pick a fight. All right? It's easy sometimes to forget where that line is, but a a real pastor tries his best to stay on the right side of that line. You know, fighting is not his first inclination. And then not covetous. Listen to this now. Listen. A person who is covetous is never happy with what he already has. He's always dissatisfied. He's wanting more and more whether it's newer cars, designer label clothes, top brand name possessions, bigger and better houses that he will soon grow tired of, has to take trips to exotic locales. This person is not pastor material. Why? Because there's something going on inside of them that drives them to this type of dissatisfaction. It's called covetousness. And the pastor, according to God, is not covetous. He's not to be covetous. So if you're a pastor and you feel like I just described you, you need to check up from the neck up. Maybe you don't even belong in the ministry because you're certainly not meeting that. You're not. And if you realize that you're sitting under the ministry of someone that's characterized exactly that what I just described, probably time to find the ministry of a true pastor of God. Now, we've, we've looked at, what, do, what have we looked at? Let's hit it real, real quick. I'm not going to go over all the details again. We've seen his aspiration, his character. Now we're going to look at the kind of the acid test, his family. Oh, boy. <laughs> his family. Verse 4, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. What does that mean, with all gravity? It means with dignity, with decorum. Um, his family is not perfect, and unfortunately, it feels like pastors and their families live in glass houses, so to speak, where everyone can just observe everything about their life. A fishbowl, I think, is the, a better way to say it. And um, this is hard on, on uh, wives and on uh, sons and daughters, very hard. But you know what? If the pastor is the right kind of person, right kind of servant of God, he's doing everything for the right reason, that's going to, you know, leadership flows from above down. So that's going to rub off on his wife and his kids. And they are going to 
not by force, but by choice, also conduct their lives with dignity and decorum. Are they going to mess up sometimes? Probably. But that's not what they want to do. That's an important distinction. Verse 5. Let's read 4 and 5 together. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subject, subjection with all gravity. Verse 5. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? <laughs> That's pretty obvious, isn't it? A home is a miniature version of the church family. And when we see someone who cannot even lead his own wife and his own children, this person is certainly not to be entrusted with the leadership of the church. That's the principle. Now let's see his maturity in, in terms of his spiritual growth. Verse 6 says, not a novice. This is the Greek word neophytes, or neophytos, actually. So they're, they're not to be neophytes. It is not new, new to the faith, a new convert. You know, often in my uh, life, I've seen celebrities, whether they're athletes or entertainment people or politicians, but I've seen people... Um, apparently truly make a conversion to Jesus Christ as their Savior. But, you know, if they're really well known, it will only be days before they're grabbed and thrown onto a speaking circuit and taken all over the country and the world and just put in front of everybody. You know what? The surest way to wreck a new convert or wreck an established church is to put a neophyte in the primary leadership role. Like, let's say that it's an athlete and they truly are saved. They still know nothing about the Bible, spiritual growth, or any of that. All they, all they can tell is about their salvation, which is not to be, I'm not saying that's wrong, but I mean, we shouldn't expose them to something that's going to make them crash even if they share their testimony, that should be about the extent of it, okay? The surest way to wreck a new, new Christian or wreck a church is to, is to put somebody who's pretty much brand new to the Christian faith in the primary leadership role. Now, why is this a rule, a requirement? It says, verse 6, not a novice, and here's why. Less being lifted up with pride Typhoon, we get our word typhoon from that. It's being puffed up. <laughs> Lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. So a person who's brand new in the faith, they're not perfect. They're going to make mistakes. But if, if they're up front and it's public and they make a mistake, this, this can be devastating. And guess what the devil does? He's right there to accuse them, right? And then they just throw the towel in on the whole Christian thing. And so do other people too. Because it, when pastors succeed, it lifts up the church. When pastors fail, it can sink a church. Okay? So this person who's going to be a pastor should not be brand new. Period. 
even the Apostle Paul, when he was saved, even he was discipled for three years in Arabia by Christ before he was allowed to go much further in the Christian faith, okay? That's important. Then notice his integrity, verse 7. Moreover, he must. Now, let's stop right there. It's the same word we saw before, D-I, or D. It means a necessity. This is a necessity, what we're about to read. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without. That is, people who are not a part of the church. Have a good reputation of the people outside the church. The word actually used here is the Greek word martyria, the same word where we get martyr from, which is a witness. And then, of course, we know we have um, that word has been transformed by what happened to people who witnessed as they were martyred, right? He is to have a good report of them which are without. Now, let me... Let me make this point right here, and we're almost done. You know, we we asked the man in the pew, should this person be a pastor or their pastor? We asked the man in the pew, but we should also ask the man on the street. As I'm going to tell you what, sometimes the people who aren't in the church know things about uh, that pastoral candidate or Uh, somebody who's uh, a pastor of a church. Sometimes the people on the outside know more about him than the people on the inside. And that's not good. Usually it's not good. Unless they know he really is a true servant of Christ and that may lead them to the Lord, right? But uh, too often it's like they may know about his gambling or womanizing or whatever, all right? So... Even people outside the church who aren't Christians, they may say something like, well, I don't, I'm not ever going to be a Christian or I don't like the church, but I tell you what, they got a good man leading that church. You know, that's, that's what has to be said about the pastor from the heart. And so let's read it all together. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." So the idea of falling into reproach is falling under censure, being reviled, just scorned, okay? And that's what will happen, not only to him, but listen, when a pastor, uh, when he melts down, when a pastor is a dumpster fire, the cause of Christ is harmed in that church and also in that community. Be careful about who you make a pastor and who you follow as a pastor. So right here in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, there it is. These are the requirements of God for pastors. Now, you may be listening today and you may have been hearing a completely different message that you need Jesus, you need Jesus, you need Jesus. I don't know how the Holy Spirit does that, but sometimes he takes a message like this meant for primarily Christians and a non-Christian will hear it and all they hear is how much they need Jesus. That's amazing to me. If that's you, I want you to call this number and someone will 
discuss this with you and help you. 877-247-2426. 877-247-2426. I want you to know that with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will be able to know for sure how your eternity will turn out. You won't have to guess anymore. Instead of following Satan and being condemned to an eternal hell, you could follow Jesus Christ and be welcome into heaven and eternity with him. Now, some of you may not want to call the number. Go to chataboutjesus.com, chataboutjesus.com. In Romans 3.23, we read, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Romans 10.13 we read, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if that's you today, friend, I hope you will call upon the name of the Lord that you might be truly saved. I thank you for listening today to This Week in the Word at dredhill.podbean.com. Like this episode, follow the podcast, and share it with someone right there where you are who needs to hear this message. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another message from the Word of God. Bye-bye.